Welcome to How to Get on a Watchlist, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. In each episode, we sit down with leading experts to talk about dangerous acts, organizations, and people. We examine historical cases, as well as the risks these subjects currently pose. From assassinations and airliner shootdowns, through to kidnappings and coups, we'll examine each of these threats through the lenses of both the dangerous actors behind them and the agencies around the world seeking to stop them. In the interest of operational security, certain tactical details will be omitted from these discussions. However, the cases and threats which we discuss here are very real. I'm Lewis H. Passant, the founder and editor of Encyclopedia Geopolitica. I'm also a doctoral researcher at the University of Loughborough in the field of intelligence and espionage in the private sector. In my day job, I provide intelligence to corporate executives on complex geopolitical and security issues. I'm Simon Schofield, co-editor of Encyclopedia Geopolitica and deputy director of the Human Security Centre, where I research issues related to terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. Joining us today is Dr. Mohamed Fraser Rahim. Mohamed is currently Vice President Global Intelligence, Resilience and Response Operations at Salesforce and is on faculty at the Citadel and Yale Universities as a visiting assistant professor, where he teaches a range of courses on intelligence, counterterrorism, de-radicalization. He's the former executive director of North America for Quilliam International, the world's oldest counter-extremism organization, where he oversaw policy issues centering around rehabilitation, demobilization and de-radicalization against violent extremism. Mohamed is an expert on violent extremism issues, both domestically and overseas. He's previously worked for the U.S. Institute of Peace, leading their Horn of Africa programs as an expert on extremism. Dr. Fraser Rahim worked for the U.S. government for more than a decade, including the Department of Homeland Security, Director of National Intelligence, and the National Counterterrorism Center, providing strategic advice and executive branch analytical support on countering violent extremism issues. He also worked for the White House and the National Security Council, where he was the author and co-author of Presidential Daily Briefs and Strategic Assessments on Extremist Ideology and Counter-Radicalization. Mohammed has conducted research in more than 40 countries on the African continent and has worked and studied throughout the Middle East and is a security fellow at the Truman National Security Project. He completed his PhD at Howard University with a focus on African studies, Islamic intellectual history and security studies, and is the author of the award-winning book America's Other Muslims, Imam W.D. Mohammed, Islamic Reform and the Making of American Islam. Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thanks so much. Really happy to be here. So I think the first question here with a, with a background like that, how, how did you get into this field? You know, that's a good question. I, I, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina in the United States, so I know we have an international audience here. And during that time, I was a physics major initially when I was in college, and I was interested really in becoming a, a periodontist. So I was fascinated by teeth and really the field of dentistry. And then I studied abroad in France. And after I studied in France, I then studied in West Africa, Senegal, Mali, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and the Gambia. And after I remember coming back and I was like, the game has changed. I absolutely need to have an, an interest in international relations and history. And from that conversation, I changed my major to history or in double minored or double majored in history in IR. And I took four years of Arabic language, which I had had a background already in Arabic with the university. 
And lo and behold, I was about to graduate and one of the three letter agencies in the United States had reached out to me and I really didn't have a strong background if I should join or not. And initially I said no. And uh, and then to, to make a long story short, I then made a decision to uh, allow that process, particularly to get a security clearance and joined, starting my career off as a, a Arabic linguist, watching jihadist messages for nine, 10 hours a day. Wow. And, and with a background like that, the, the next natural question, I suppose, is what then prompted you to write this, uh, this fantastic book, America's Other Muslims? You know, th- this is really a fusion between both personal and professional interests. I always, my work has always been an intersection, both particularly once I left government, between academia, as a practitioner, as someone who also is fascinated by policy. And for a while, I struggled because I remember being a, a government analyst working in a closed building and not necessarily be able to take those secrets out the building. And I was struggling to say, ah, one day I want to be able to to really f- be fully expressed. And so I want to be able to bring together my knowledge and passion for history, passion for cultures. And so really, I, while I was working on my dissertation, I, I've always worked while I was in graduate school. So once I, when I was completing my master's, Back in 2007, I was working as a government analyst, a CT analyst, counterterrorism analyst. And then I also, while I was finishing up my uh, PhD, I was also working as a government analyst. And I, and I really wanted to fuse together all that passion. So as a historian, I'm looking at the world from the lens, from using historiography as my methodology. And so how does the world evolve from the context of how people, places, and times, how they maneuver? And so for me, that was my foundation. I also knew quickly that I also was working, particularly at the U.S. Institute of Peace once I left government and then also ultimately with Quilliam, that I wanted to fuse the policy interests and the work I had been doing working with violent extremists. And so for me, I didn't want to pick. I didn't want to pick and choose. And I found a way really to bring it all together. And so America's Other Muslims is, an, is really a product of both the fusion of my passion for history and understanding that role and that importance and the value of it. And then also the desire to really bring it all the way up to the present. And so the book really addressed what I would characterize as a 40 year plus counter radicalization, close to actually 50 year plus counter radicalization strategy from a community that was rooted in the United States that went through what I would consider real and or perceived grievances of hate and violence in light of the American experiment, and then finding a way to then get past that resentment to become a healthy, productive member of the society. And so so I went through and navigated through the historical context of Islam in America, actually going back to West Africa, its role of nonviolence in in West African, or I should say pluralism within West African society, moving its way into the United States with the son of Elijah Muhammad, who was the leader of the Nation of Islam, a black nationalist movement that had some elements of traditional Islam, some elements of what I call Islamic hybrid movements, infusing together what would then address the plight of the African-American condition. W.D. Muhammad, the son of, rejects his father's teachings, was excommunicated for over four times, and he led the largest mass conversion of American Muslims to Sunni or Orthodox Islam. 
But that orthodox Islam was not rooted in where the center of gravity was the Arab Middle East. The center of gravity was not even the African rich intellectual traditions in places like Timbuktu or Agadez, Niger or, or in Mali. But what he offered to say is that you can be both American and Muslim on the same term. So W.D. Muhammad offers this radical shift from individuals who were very much anti-government, very much wanting to revolt against the state, and then finding means within his tradition and then finding means to address the plight to then what I characterize as a counter-radicalization strategy. And so I thought it was exciting to be able to put together a body of work that had contemporary application that was able to to line itself with other strategies that other countries are stru- that have engaged with. For example, the United Kingdom you might be familiar with Channel or Prevent, which is one of the efforts to prevent extremism. Or if you go to Saudi Arabia, there's a model using theology because it's 95% Muslim. Or, or if you follow, if you go to Singapore, then you use more of a cognitive shift. And so what I've offered is to say that this was one strategy, one model out of different models that are out there throughout the world to address issues of violent extremism. In this case, Islamist violent extremism. And I characterize, I make a distinction between Islamism and Islam. Islam, a religion practiced by 1.4 slash 1.5 billion Muslims throughout the world. Islamism, a political ideology that imposes a strict, narrow, literalist, many times legalistic interpretation of Islam that doesn't allow for, for rooms of creativity and expression, right? Now, we do know very much that the extreme end of that is groups like Al-Qaeda, or ISIS and their affiliates throughout the world. But the other item are nonviolent Islamists who have popped up. And if you look at one example is uh, Rashid Ganeshi's party, Adnahda, that's in Tunisia, that has led the right of basically, we want to be part of the political mainstream. We want to be part of the political process, but we also recognize that Islam is our sort of uh, foundation, our ideology, but not through violent means. And so anyway, I, I think that's important because there are many threats in many respects that are out there um, and beyond Islamism being one that we've all certainly seen in, in the most recent part of our contemporary times. But there are, there are many others that are more. Now we see the rise of far right, far left extremism that have taken cues in many ways from Islamist violent extremists who made it there, should I say, cool. I, I remember the times just, what, five, 10 years ago. The concept of jihadi cool, young Tunisians, Moroccans who are traveling to the so-called Islamic State to get involved in the attractive um, appeal of standing up what they considered against Western oppression and occupation. And so um, all that what I've kind of highlighted is this book really captures some of these, I think, really important gems as one contribution out of many contributions in this space to combat extremism, combat violent extremism worldwide. So that's an absolutely fantastic book. And we'll make sure we get a copy of a, a link to that in our show notes for members of the audience who wants to, wants to buy a copy of that. So I suppose that brings us on really well to, to the topic today, which is how to join an, an extremist group. Now, as you've alluded to, there's many different flavors of extremist group. How would you define an extremist group? Are they, are they always necessarily engaged in some sort of violent or illegal activity? 
Well, I'll start off to say that extremism, violent extremism, terrorism has often been one of the most contentious terms and debated depending on where you are. The FBI, CIA, Defense Department have a very clear definition of what they classify extremism to be in terms of individuals who have belief systems, political, ideological viewpoints that want to subjugate, oppress, restrict others, and they use violent means to impose their wrath, right? So academics, when they engage from this space, political violence might be the frame of how they see this. And it could be from an IR historical um, lens of how they look at and see this. So let me start off to just say that the debates are out there and endless in terms of that definition. What I would also just offer to say is that when we look at extremism, it's evolved. I mean, this is not new to be very clear in uncertain terms. The United States, the Ku Klux Klan certainly becomes very much part of the impressionable mind for many Americans in terms of violent extremism. But if you look at and you go to the Far East, you see Tamil Tigers and its evolution. We see the IRA in Europe. There are a number of data points throughout the world that we have in terms of what violent extremist groups are. And as you've probably heard, the popular statement is that, you know, one person's freedom fighters, another person's terrorists, and perhaps vice versa. I don't think that that's still far from the truth. But what what I would also offer to say is that dealing with an interesting time where there's the political dynamic of this as well. So we've seen politicians who have used in the spirit of trying to get elected again, weaponize this concept of extremism for their own political end states. And so we're dealing with both the nation state, countries at a very kind of country level. And then we're also dealing with non-state groups who have operated in this space. If you go um, look at any terrorism database, particularly global terrorism database, the University of Maryland START has a number and wonderful body of resource resources and research in this. There's others throughout the world. They will give you very clear perspectives of of what terrorist groups have engaged with throughout the years. And that is that will give us an evolution, a a bit of a, a stamp in history to show us how groups have been able to increase attacks, whether they have been in Arab Middle East, if they've been in Africa, et cetera. Where we see the expansion of violent extremism, particularly Textbook classical tech violent extremism for many of the imagination for many of us, starting with 9-11 as that point of departure, absolutely recognizing extremism, terrorism developed prior to that. If we look at that, we're seeing the African continent where a lot of this movements are operating. They have hospitable environments. There are porous borders. There are nation states that have provided them haven for their activity. Let's not forget Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb was created and was facilitated because the Algerian government, the Algerian environment created the condition for them to be able to to develop and cultivate. Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb was the quintessential franchise organization because they were able to then engage and replicate the activities of Al-Qaeda core and then be able to be known for their own activities in, in terms of their MO, right? So we, they were known for kidnapping for ransom payments where Asian countries would pay the ransom, European nations as well. Very different than what we saw franchise organizations like Al-Shabaab operating in East Africa or Boko Haram known for the indiscriminate attacks and um, their grievances against the Nigerian government. So I just give you that sort of dynamic that that these groups have evolved quite a bit. The definition is evolving as well. And it has continued to evolve in light of 
the shifting nature, copycat nature of these organizations and how these groups have evolved. Anhart's Brevik wanting to carry out an attack in Europe and then having someone like Dylan Roof in 2015, then being inspired by Anhart's Brevik, began somewhere. Why was there a desire? We, we, we can see now from affidavits, from reports, from investigation of DOJ, Department of Justice, and analysis that clearly they were inspired trying to replicate the behavior. What they saw others who were able to have shock and awe attacks. They were able to engage in sometimes small scale and large scale uh, attacks. Some of those large scale t- attacks were considered spectacular. They were able to have a wow factor. Thank you so much for that that background. And uh, you've quite nicely set out the sort of broad kaleidoscope of extremism. You have jihadism, but you also have extreme left, extreme right, and even some sort of newer groups coming forward. How do these groups recruit people? Do they all use the same sort of methods or do they differ between the sort of different ideological strands? Good question. I mean, now, thanks to just really good, rigorous work and researchers who are engaged in this space, we have a good canvas of the level of um, how groups are operating, right? So we know there's a really interesting report that just came out in 2018 from the UN called Journey In and Out of Extremism. And it was canvassing roughly over 500 youth, mostly male, between the ages of 18 to like 35. And it was looking at why they joined extremist groups, largely particularly based in East Africa. And many of them, they're driving, I think many of us using, again, using 9-11 as a point of departure, just I use that as sort of a starting point, would say that people are indoctrinated and diehard true believers. You might've heard this concept, right? This idea of true believers who are diehard, passionate about it. But what we found in this particular analysis was that Many individuals had little to no understanding of these religious perspectives. I'm just using with jihadism for a second. And so as such, individuals joined movements because they were looking for a sense of belonging. They were looking for meaning. They were looking for purpose. And the incentives, sometimes financial, that were offered were were providing some of those gaps, right? So so I think it's important to recognize that, you know, yes, some youth, some individuals have been driven by financial resources provided to them because the state wasn't providing um, the employment opportunities for individuals living in a developing nation, right? So that, that's that's absolutely there. But but also just as much as people have been exposed, or I should say individuals who've been exposed to recruitment tactics and techniques, they vary. Individuals themselves have m- many different reasons why they join movements and causes. Some saw it as attractive and sexy because it was part of a global movement. And so I think we have learned quite a bit from the evolution from Al-Qaeda carrying out attacks in the United States. We've learned from ISIS's the, the ability to come up with magazines like Inspire and Dabak magazine and using this as a means of recruitment. It worked for individuals. It, it was able to resonate, which resonance sometimes can be hard to measure, right? When we're looking at how do you measure the results, right? But but I think recruitment has been effective at times, getting individuals joining these movements, and it, in some respect, half the battle is the war of ideas, right? Impacting and influencing individuals. So I think that that's been interesting. We're in an interesting phase now that social media is now one of the driving forces of how individuals have been recruited to as well. 
I remember working particularly in the spaces, particularly in government, post-government, working with when I was with Quilliam too as well, that social media individuals were radicalized online. I remember going and seeing, thinking about the fact that someone would go use Facebook Live and then advertise their attacks in live. Now we've seen that replicated. Unfortunately, we saw the attacker in New Zealand who used a GoPro, et cetera. And so I think that that has definitely inspired individuals to join movements when they've seen one individual do what they perhaps wanted to do. And so I think recruitment strategies have varied. I think they're learning. Now we're interesting enough, we're probably moving to a phase where the rise of both the deep, dark and surface web, the, the trifecta, have been effective means of of recruitment. Now individuals have also, I don't like using the terms individuals have the lone wolf. I use the term self-starters. I think there's always a network behind individuals, whether it's online or physical. So that that network of self-starters, all you need is that like a, like a flame. All you need is a little trigger to be able to inspire you to then go out and execute the target. Last thing I'll say onto your point, there's a difference between radicalization and then mobilization. Radicalization from 2001 to 2015 could be a slow process of individuals joining a movement and a cause to justify what they see as agreements of frustration, right? And they want to use violence. The One of the former French intelligence officials, I remember him mentioning at various settings, um, now it's public, that the, the shortest span of time he saw someone radicalized was two weeks. Well, I can tell you that now, you know, let's use 2015 onward, we're seeing people radicalize and then now mobilized to execute identifying a target and then seeking to carry out their actions, right? So radicalization, you know, historically sometimes could take years, follow the motto of Al-Qaeda, of Ayman Zawahri, using a courier network, using very long mail-driven processes to be able to MAIL, to engage in activities, and then getting response back to say, can we then go operationalize our activity? We're now in this interesting period where you know, the instructions has already been given to the groups and movements. If you see something, go ahead and carry out that attack. And with the world that we live into as well, and the accessibility of just resources makes it that much more concerning. So we're in very interesting times. And also, again, the echo chambers that are developing across these networks um, are concerning too as well for any student in this space. And that really invites a really important question here. You know, you've touched on these push publications, the Islamic State's Darvik magazine, but echo chambers themselves are a really interesting phenomena here. You know, the incel movement springs to mind as one example of that. And how much of this recruitment do you think is happening by these kind of push and pull methods versus, let's call it self-radicalization by being caught in an echo chamber? Do, do you think there's a one more important than the other? Yeah, you know, the old model was, I remember putting together a product, it's called the Radicalization Primer, it's declassified, it's on, you can Google and you'll find it, produced by my former employee, National Counterterrorism Center. And we talked about this idea of push-pull, right? There's one element pushing you this way, it pulls, it goes, I've, I've evolved in my thinking, it's more like a bicycle if you're shifting gears. If you move from one gear to another, they can have different trickling effects, and they can also have a ripple effect as well. So I think that's one way to kind of look at these issues when we look at more broader issues of violent extremism, kind of the push-pull effects. 
in that dynamic. You know, the Intel movement is quite interesting because many of those, that echo chamber also is a, is a community. And one of the things with the Intel group that is interesting about, again, involuntary um, celibacy, they look for validation amongst others who share their ideology, right? Not a surprise because we've seen this across extremist groups, but that echo chamber creates sort of the the condition to validate actions to then carry out what they perceive as uh, as as a justifiable causes and infliction of harm on others. It depends, right? We're, we're evolving how we see these issues. I think they're learning from one another. I think that also push-pull factors are still, and as I talked about, I've seen it now evolve into more of a sort of the bicycle shifting gear. They all feed off of one another. If you go from one gear, you could go to a different experience. And so I think that groups like incels um, have similar dynamics to as well because they've certainly learned from the experience of other groups but they also operate where they look for validation amongst each other. And I think that that's a really important idea that that validation, and we've seen this across other groups, but I think that that validation also brings a sense of community and a sense of that community brings a sense of belonging to then encourage others to execute what they consider actions, um, usually afflicting harm on others, in this case, with many incels against women. So what I would just, you know, kind of connect both of those items to in terms of just the broader research is that we're dealing with, we don't have the luxury of groups following a singular playbook. They are not following a singular model. We're learning and get rather really interesting insights from formers themselves who provide a, a hell of a lot of details that help us understand. And, and so I think that that's important as we look at this space and making sure that we stay adept to the shifts and changes based off of how these groups operate, and at times, quite frankly, the self-starting behavior that sometimes people aren't card-carrying members of groups, but they are sympathetic members. I think that's really interesting. But just to uh, to change gears, to use your analogy there, can I um, ask what you think about the people themselves that get radicalized? Do you think these groups look for specific types of people? And are there certain traits that maybe all of us have that make people more or less susceptible to radicalization? Well, thanks so much. I, I would debunk the idea that mental health is the is the gateway, if you will, to why individuals join extremist groups. I think, I think many will just automatically assume that. Let me also highlight my experience, again, having been involved put together, compiled analysis directly to the president himself, where I've written on presidential daily briefs. I have sat down, interviewed jihadists themselves, the youngest person in U.S. history. I personally worked to rehabilitate him. One could call to say that I helped to de-radicalize him. I like to use less sensational terminology and said, I helped him on his journey because that journey doesn't stop. The same way that we're dealing with individuals who are former drug dealers or former um, gang members, that process takes time. It's not overnight. You have to work with them in a step-by-step process. And quite frankly, it's not sexy. Many individuals just want to, in this era we live in, who would have thought that we're going to say that they're looking for some way to inoculate, to have a vaccine, that you give them this and they will automatically change. But no, I, I don't think we're, we're there. That The hard work, rolling up your sleeve, talking with individuals and giving them the right dose of support, whether it is psychosocial support, yes, mental health, whether it is, yes, finding them a job, yes, whether it is making them 
find a, a, a partner, a spouse, whether it is finding them resources so they can be productive members of society. That will vary depending on the individual. And that is the tough, hard work. And so I can tell you from my time working with former Gitmo detainees, working with individuals, I've written a book. There's a collaboration with Oxford University Press talking about de-radicalization and um, dealing with mental health. Mental health, it can be one direction for individuals, but it is not the sole gateway reason why individuals join. And so as we deal with reasons why individuals join movements, it's important to look at the holistic person. I'm hopefully trying to give you different examples for you then to go go out yourselves to you know do your research on it and find and see the incredible work that's being done. There's a wonderful organization, Dr. Edith Schlaffer, a woman without borders, where she's created what's called uh, or I think it's Sisters Without Borders, one of the two, of mother schools. That mothers, and she also created a father's school, that mothers themselves are the first lines of defense against extremism. Fathers themselves. If you remember the, the, the bombers at Molenbeek in Belgium, when they were carrying out the attacks, they were on the phone with their mom. And so as they're on the phone with their mother, uh, about to engage in this activity, and, and the individual, his profile, nominally religious, um, had engaged with drug activity, had engaged with um, sort of a, a broader underworld. His mom's there on the phone trying to bring him down, right? Ultimately, we know he carried out the attacks, but it just shows you the power of the family and that family dynamic and how important it can play. And so that's why these holistic models have to be done in a way where it looks at the total human being, not in isolation and recognizing the individual's journey. They take time. The late Jesse Morton, Google him, you'll find he was a member of the Revolutionary Muslim with an individual by the name of Yusuf Abdul Khattab, and they were sensationalized. I would call it Speaker's Corner equivalent in the United States, were um, which we don't really have that model per se. Uh, who happened to be on the, the street corners in the United States in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s? And Jesse Morton um, ha, ha, um, has passed away this past year. And one of the things he would would talk about is the role of treating individuals individually as you engage with helping them on their journey. I could give you a number of others who would say similar. And that holistic approach has to be done, though it takes time. And it's not solely a security issue. It's an all of society approach. And so influencers have to be engaged. Psychosocial technicians have to be involved. And I can tell you, individuals who I've worked with have been from the full spectrum. Some who have been on the spectrum of um, had autism, and there have been individual individuals who've been radicalized by ideological true belief. And so as we look at these issues, I think it's important to really tailor them in ways where if we can at the macro level address them, but also at the micro too. So that's really interesting. I think after the break, we'll, we'll talk about the, the kind of blue team side of it, as we call it, where we discuss how governments and agencies can can counter these kinds of uh, radicalization pathways. But before we do that, you know, we've we've got a colleague in the studio from a, a counterintelligence background. So I think he, he would really uh, not be happy with me if I didn't ask this question, which is, are extremist groups aware of efforts to stem the flow of new recruits? And are they taking actions to, to counter them in any way? You know, I think groups themselves, they pay attention. I mean, the example of just publications themselves that have been published show very much they have very much looked at the issues of the day. They are very much capturing the themes that are happening in the broader world, and they're trying to to um, get those recruits to join their movements. I use the example of Al-Qaeda. 
I've had the manuals there and I'm looking at oh, two that's on my bookshelf that have been around and they're you know able to address the current issues of the U.S. going into Iraq, dressing condition of how maybe a particular policy issue within a broader Western nation. And I think also groups have evolved quite a bit where they're also using that both at an online space, but also point to point um, with individuals to use that to justify why they are, um, why they are frustrated, why they're angry, and why they think that their cause is so much more important. You know, there are anti-government groups that are in the United States right now that very much have learned from what didn't work in in Europe. For example, if you look at some of the recruitment activities of individuals wanting to go to Ukraine, I I can't believe that, you know, we're we're saying this right now, but individuals who were traveling to Ukraine for technical expertise in the mid-2000s to locations where they could then come back to the United States to carry out actions and then use that as a part of their recruitment. And they were taking videos. So it's quite interesting that, you know, where was that model coming from? It's certainly coming from learning from the activities of Salafi jihadists who were occupying, engaging a space both in in the Middle East and then individuals who would then travel to Europe to execute attacks, i.e. Glasgow, Scotland, i.e. in France, etc. And so, yeah, I think that this is we're we're in an interesting time about how these groups operate how they're learning from one another, and also how they use recruitment efforts, videos, point-to-point engagement with individuals for their cause. So after the break, we'll discuss how governments and other organizations can fight this problem. You have been listening to How to Get on a Watch List, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. If you like this show, don't forget to check out our other content at Encyclopedia Geopolitica, which you can find by going to howtogetonawatchlist.com, where you can find our analysis on various geopolitical issues, as well as reading lists covering topics like those discussed in the podcast. Please also consider subscribing to the podcast on your streaming platform of choice, as well as rating us five stars if you enjoyed the discussion. So in the first half, we spoke a lot about how extremist groups radicalize, recruit, how they operate. So let's flip that around then. How do governments and other organizations fight radicalization? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I've been on all sides of the angle, so I, I, can, um, I, can, I can definitely give you a few thoughts. You know, governments themselves have, have been learning and adapting accordingly. It's, there's an interesting uh, perspective to this, at least from the United States and then perhaps our allied partners probably would share similar. You know, when I was in government, I saw counterterrorism um, as, you know, traditional deny and disrupt efforts of the adversary coming into the battlefield, right? And in many respects, it was using all elements of government, largely kinetic activities as a means to drive that action, right? So use the example of in Pakistan, Afghanistan, operation activity, operational activity that's taking place. I usually morphed together, particularly when I was going through a young onboarded CIA analyst working, going through the career analyst program, learning my trade craft, learning how to write brief, getting briefings from individuals from the field, understanding insights that so then I can be, I can write good analysis. I largely saw that 
counterterrorism and what I would consider countering violent extremism programs as all one and the same. So what we would probably consider the soft power engagement, if we did engage with it, largely relegated to our State Department and our foreign ministry, et cetera, right? That those programs themselves, whether it's comic books, whether it is um, working with religious leaders and scholars, I kind of always conflated them all together and largely probably would be more of a fan traditionally with the kinetic activity. Now, after I left government and then went to U.S. Institute of Peace, I've worked as a peace builder. I then got a better glimpse of understanding how these spaces also can be parsed out. And I think that's important because governments themselves, there's a place and role to protect and defend the nation, broader aspects of national security, and making sure that all elements of national power are used to protect the nation state and partners. But what I've evolved in my understanding, particularly now being out of government since 2015, I can say that I have got a much better and deeper appreciation of the role of preventative efforts that we can use upstream. You probably have heard upstream efforts to prevent. And those upstream efforts allow for those CT kinetic activity also to have a nice careful balance. And so I think governments themselves have an important role to play, not just through intelligence means and efforts, which are important, but through diplomatic defense humanitarian ways and support in this effort as well. So governments play a huge role. Again, having been involved um, in this space, I think it's important also to allow for the role of nonprofit organizations that have are the recipients of sometime government funding in the United States. We have a a long tradition, if you will, of setting up grants and funding for individuals to be in those spaces. And I think they, they, they hold an important run, one to provide those outlets to as well. How do governments go about defining extremism and how do these practices evolve? Because as you rightly described, the the ideologies and the recruitment procedures are evolving all the time on the sort of red team side of the fence. So how does the government keep up to date with these sorts of things and how do they evolve their approaches as they go? Well, as I mentioned, you know, depending on who you talk to, the UK's Terrorism Act 2006 has a certain clear definition than what it has probably presently. The DOD, Department of Defense, has a perspective, um, State Department. So it it varies. But what I I think governments themselves have an important role of of making sure that what I call a sort of contractual relationship between the public and their ability to protect the citizens to offer some level of transparency of what's taking place, right? I, I'm a big believer of the use of the use of soft power tools to engage actions. I think they're longstanding. I think they have more durability for the uh, for the horizon scanning down the line. Yes, again, those those activities to take out leaders will will be there. That's always part of just keeping a safe a nation state uh, safe. And so I think governments, they, they struggle, I think, quite frankly, they, to find that right balance of how to execute this. I mean, the United States in particular, my my home birth, my place of birth, my home country, I use that because we ha- our defense industry, our industry, our intelligence apparatus is, is massive. And our role that we play worldwide also is part of a network that um, that operates in a way where we need that sort of interdependency. But I think that what's happened in the lessons learned, quite frankly, from 9-11, dealing with 
leaving Afghanistan with dealing with the aftermath of the Islamic State is some lessons learned, which is how do we work with broader local communities? How do we work with with themes and concepts early on to try to disrupt them before they foster and get to to the point where we've seen you know whole sloth of area of of of, of Syria and Iraq being governed by a non state actor, right? So I think this is a work in progress to really answer your question. This is evolving, unfortunately, with. In many of our Western liberal democracies, the shift of governments also sometimes brings shift of policies. So it seems as though we've made progress in one area because one political party saw it as important to address this in a very holistic way. But then we have the politicization of security. And then that causes considerable setbacks and progress that could have been made elsewhere. So, you know, I put I put a challenge and task out for all of us who are researchers in this space, who are practitioners, who are academics, to really think thoughtfully about where we want this to evolve. And I, I don't, it requires all of us to be active participants as well. So speaking of active participants, you, you've spoken about the role of nonprofits and governments, but what about the private sector? What role does the private sector play in countering extremism and radicalization? I'm thinking especially because of the role of social media and new media and their role in radicalization. Oh, I think the private sector uh, is incredible mouthpieces of change. I mean, the technologists of old, of 100 years ago, were likely spiritual religious leaders. The new, um, the new leaders of this space now are technologists. They are entrepreneurs who offer innovation and creativity, not taking away any from those religious leaders of the past. And so um, I'm, I think we're in an interesting space of the private sector driving change. Oftentimes, I hate to use the term big tech driving it in really creative, innovative ways. But it's still all of this has to have some ethical guardrails too, right? So I'm a big believer of how do we do this in a way where it is protecting human rights and protecting citizens, individual or agency, but how do we do it in a way where it also is helpful? I think, for example, and I'm speaking in my private capacity right here, but just working in the space of Salesforce, I've seen it in an important role of how businesses themselves as a whole need the support, need the expertise of individuals who work who are working broadly geopolitical issues to understand how things are taking place but private sector can also obviously bring about and speed up and automate ways that unfortunately governments can't and so i think it's an interesting balance of working as i said from the beginning across industries so mohammed the two final questions that we always like to ask guests here. The first of them is, what keeps someone like you up at night in the space of extremism? What is it that worries you most? The adaption of the environment, the pace of multiple threats, multiple hazards. I'll never forget, I was taking a training at DHS and one of the trainers was just talking about multiple threats, all threats, all hazards. And he was talking, particularly at the time, we were dealing with a port security issue. I think that the, the pace of what we're dealing with, operating both within the the world of the unseen, meaning the, on the online world, at the same time as at the physical as well, the material as well. And so that's an interesting space that we're in happening real time. The extreme uncertainties that we're confronted with, that keeps me up at night. We're dealing with drought, extreme drought. We're, we're going to be dealing with soon. We're in hurricane season now in the U.S., extreme flooding. We're dealing with 
authoritarianisms to his wife. I just saw an article yesterday in Financial Times talking about the rising tensions in the GNC, some some tensions with Turkey and Greece. I mean, nothing new, particularly there. So I, these items keep me up where the fact that I'm still doing this work now in private sector, working and teaching and lecturing as well, perhaps even at a more, at a higher velocity than when I was in government, says that this space is 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 wide open for, for those who are listening on this call who are in graduate school. You will have a healthy future available to you. But security requires thoughtfulness, reflecting. It requires a level of precision and staying sharp on top of what's taking place more than ever. I'm fascinated by um, new ad- new shifts in religious communities and how in the United States worldwide, the decline of organized religious people going to organize religious activities on a weekly basis. So all these trends aren't in isolation. To me, they offer a bit of a conceptual wholeness when you piece them together. And that's what keeps me up at night. Absolutely. And I do think that we are in a sort of unprecedented age of change in the speed with which these dynamics change. Um, and I often describe counterterrorism as, as the role as being like a goalkeeper. Is But even the finest goalkeeper on, on their best day We'll, we'll let a couple of goals in. You know, they only have to be lucky once and we have to be lucky every time. So I guess the, the final question to sort of end things on, what sort of questions should analysts and researchers be asking about this kind of field that maybe we haven't discussed tonight? Where should we be looking? What should we be thinking about and reading about at the moment? Yeah, you know, as a historian, definitely look toward the past to understand the future. And so I, I think it's time to be um, voracious readers. We, I think more than ever, uh, um, the uh, the time of uh, one of my teachers used to tell me, it's always good to slow down to speed up, right? So the moments of really reading thoughtfully, and I, I would encourage the, the this next generation to as well to forge relationships Cross disciplines because they really help enrich how you think and view the world, and then also forge those relationships across perspectives too as well. Um, I think for me, um, best relationships are the dinner parties with individuals who absolutely don't agree with anything I have to say at all. Um, those really help tremendously. Well, Mohamed, this has been an absolutely fantastic call, so thank you very much for joining us. Our producer for this show was Edwin Tran. Our researchers were Alex Smith and Colin Reed. And as a reminder to our listeners, we will be including links to Mohamed's book, America's Other Muslims, Iman W.D. Mohamed, Islamic Reform and the Making of American Islam, in the show notes, which can be found at www.howtogetonawatchlist.com. Encyclopedia Geopolitica is also now on Patreon for people who would like to contribute to the production of our podcast, articles, and reading lists. For those who want access to our special patron perks, as well as the satisfaction of supporting our work, head over to www.patreon.com slash encyclopediageopolitica. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.